This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, a people's history. From memes to movements, see how this powerful online community shapes culture and society. Black Twitter, a people's history, is now streaming on Hulu. Hey, y'all. This is Sam's Aunt Betty. This week, what happens if the coronavirus is here to stay? And a return to Broadway. All right, let's start the show. Hey, y'all, you're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Sam Sanders. So uh, pumpkin spice latte season is here. It is fall, a season I like. But we are here again entering another fall season in a pandemic. I know a lot of us here in the U.S., we are now vaccinated. And some things feel a bit less oppressive than they did last year. But we are not back to normal. Not at all. Not by a long shot. And in the midst of that reality, I have begun to, over the last few weeks, suspect that maybe we won't ever go back to the before times. You know, to young, innocent, maskless Sam in a crowded indoor space, dancing with strangers without a super spreader care in the world. But maybe I'm wrong. I hope that I'm wrong. A person can hope, right? Oh, Sam, I have bad news for you. (laughs) (laughs) Just tell me. (laughs) That is Catherine Wu. She is a staff writer at The Atlantic and apparently a dasher of dreams. So I think, you know, first I will caveat this by saying that we know nothing for sure because all predictions um, have a way of coming back to bite us, right? Especially during this pandemic. But it really feels like the growing consensus at this point is we are, we sort of... Uh, the ship for eradication sailed quite some time ago, at least any time in the near future. Basically, we had our chance and we blew it. We may have entered a phase that I have begun calling COVID forever. I know, it sounds bad, huh? But maybe COVID forever is not all dark and gloomy. And there's a way forward and a reality in which COVID is there, but not so omnipresent. Yeah, so I think the short version of this is, you know, what we are experiencing right now is the pandemic stage. Uh, But eventually what happens is we as hosts start to change. You know, the virus might change a little bit too, but that's certainly less predictable. But basically immunity is building on our side as the virus infects us repeatedly or we acquire immunity through vaccines. Mm -hmm. Uh, So eventually we will reach this kind of inflection point where the virus is still able to circulate among us, but we are just on average less hospitable to it. Um, Outbreaks will be smaller. They might be, you know, even seasonal, occurring at only certain times of the year. And it'll just be sort of more background noise. Um, Like uh, good examples of more endemic viruses are going to be like flu viruses, cold viruses, the things we see uh, regularly, but not always and not with this much alarm. Okay, so then... I don't know, that kind of makes me feel a little bit better because in one of your recent pieces for The Atlantic, you use the phrase forever virus and that just chills <laughs> my soul. That sounds really awful. But what I hear you saying is COVID will eventually become something similar in our lives to like the flu. And that makes me feel a bit better. So like how awful is that reality really? Yeah, it's it's hard to say, right? Because, you know, the um 
the sort of barometer we have for this are going to be flu viruses and common cold viruses. And, you know, common cold viruses, several of them are caused by other coronaviruses, you know, distant cousins of the one we're dealing with now, if that's a helpful frame of reference. But I think that is the key distinction here, right? Like when we talk about a virus being around forever, that doesn't always mean we're going to experience it in the same way in perpetuity. Mm. And so, you know, that does not mean the pandemic is going to last forever. That does not mean that COVID is even going to be on average as severe as it is now, or even that the virus is going to be as, I guess, spreadable between us. Like outbreaks won't always be this crazy. Uh, So, you know, another way to look at this is like we're headed for uh, an on average lighter version of COVID. Uh, It could be our fifth common cold coronavirus. And that is an optimistic scenario that a lot of experts have told me about. Mm. See, Catherine, what I want you to tell me is uh, come New Year 2022, we just (laughs) turn a corner. (laughs) Yeah, the the ball drops and the threat disappears. (laughs) (laughs) So that's the optimistic case, COVID becoming something that is more manageable and perhaps even seasonal, like the flu. Mm -hmm. What is a more pessimistic case for a year or two of COVID life? Well, I think all of the scenarios sort of converge on this idea that it basically does become endemic, but endemic can have many flavors or sort of degrees of severity. Say, for example, you know, uh, the virus continues to mutate and sort of adapt. Maybe it gets uh, faster at spreading between people or it picks up a couple mutations that make it a little bit less recognizable to our immune system. So our vaccines don't work quite as well. Or, you know, like our uh, us as hosts, um, we don't do as good a job of remembering the virus from an immune system standpoint, you know, like think of how we deal with the flu uh, every year. It is kind of this background noise virus, but the flu is certainly nothing trivial. It kills people. Yeah, yeah, it kills people. I got to get a new shot every year at the CVS. (laughs) Exactly. Um, Yeah, I just got mine on Saturday. It's something that we have to really actively manage. Um, Maybe a way to think about it is like, that's kind of a high maintenance endemic virus. Um, But, you know, SARS-CoV-2, the new coronavirus, doesn't necessarily have to look like that. Maybe it could be something... I will say, from my experience thus far, COVID has been pretty high maintenance. (laughs) (laughs) No, exactly. And it has been high maintenance so far. But remember, this is the pandemic phase. Maybe it'll be less high maintenance than the flu when it hits its endemic phase. But we just don't have any promises about that yet. Yeah. So talking about this longer timeline of risk reducing over time, but with potential blips, Mm -hmm. what does that look like, I don't know, two or five years from now? Are we still going to see people wearing masks at the grocery store? Like, are certain parts of COVID life kind of here to stay for the long haul, at least for the next few years? Yeah, it's a great question. And I think that's something that a lot of us are are trying to start to reckon with. I think the way that we have been living life during the pandemic is not sustainable on a population level. We do have to find a middle ground, but you know, maybe it's not a bad idea for us to mask up in public uh, during the colder months when we know that a lot of respiratory viruses uh, have a really easy time moving into our airways. Or, you know, maybe there is just better etiquette about not going to work when you feel super sick, which was yeah. not enough of yeah. a thing in the before times, right? Yeah. Um, I, I feel like those things, I would love to see some of those things stick around. Yeah. I hope the masks stick around. It makes me feel at peace a little more. And it takes off that sometimes burden of like 
having to smile at strangers. <laughs> you know, yeah. like you make weird eye contact in the cheese aisle at the grocery store, and then you're like, oh, I got to smile and say hello. With the mask on, you don't have to. Yep. Such freedom. Such freedom. I love that too. I am <laughs> kind of like an angry introvert sometimes, and this okay. has just made things a lot easier. <laughs> yes. So we'll have to become better as Americans making peace with this, you know, quote unquote, COVID forever life. But we can be flexible and we've shown ourselves to be flexible. But it seems as if a lot of our institutions can't accommodate that kind of disruption or flexibility. We've seen how public schools, how daycares, how offices, how the infrastructure of our day-to-day lives, how they haven't been able to keep up with crazy COVID's fits and starts. Do you see American institutions getting better at dealing with this reality over time? This is a tough question. I think we have the ingenuity and we have the capability to build in the infrastructure so that these things are more bearable, that um, outbreaks are more containable in the future. But I do think, you know, we have to inject some realism into this, right? Humans have kind of a, a short attention span. We've been through big epidemics and outbreaks before, and we haven't always learned from them. I hope that changes this time around, but it's not necessarily a guarantee. And, you know, excuse me, well, I very briefly get on a soapbox here, but, yeah, you know, it. think of all the, the inequities that this pandemic has just made more visible. They were here before the pandemic. They were exacerbated by the pandemic. And even if we end up with a virus that is on average less threatening, it's still going to concentrate risk and suffering in groups that have really been bearing a lot of that burden before. Mm. What are we going to do to fix that? I think that's a huge thing we have to grapple with. Like adding yet another respiratory virus to our seasonal repertoire is not a trivial thing. We didn't have to be at this point. We didn't have to add to this burden. We ended up doing it and we will find a way to live with it. But do we have to do it again in the future? I don't think so. Lord, I hope not. Yeah. (laughs) I hope we don't have to do this again. Uh, You know, one of your colleagues at The Atlantic, she wrote something in a piece that she published about COVID that really spoke to me, and it was soothing to me. Your colleague, Sarah Zhang, uh, she wrote about this new normal, this COVID forever idea, and Mm -hmm. she said, quote, it will feel strange for a while, and then it will not. It will be normal. And that got to me. And I think it's a reminder that humans as a species are incredibly adaptable, whether we believe it or not, and whether we like it or not. And, you know, not to quote Jurassic Park, but yes, to actually quote Jurassic Park, life finds a way. (laughs) We will figure this out. Absolutely. I mean, as like a microcosm of this, I think about, you know, when I was, oh, I think eight years old, I had to get glasses and I hated the idea. Um, I had to put them on my face. They itched. It was such a pain. Like I couldn't see anything when I was showering. It was the worst. But eventually I stopped feeling them. We are adaptable. We can incorporate things in our lives to make things more livable. Um, I have high hopes for that at the very least. You know, at some point we'll be sleeping in our masks. Give it time. (laughs) Oh, God. I I take it back. No, no, no. I take it back. That sounds so (laughs) sad. Oh, my God. Thanks again to Catherine Wu. She is a staff writer at The Atlantic. Listeners, stay with us. The coronavirus might be here forever, but at least we'll have Broadway. 
Coming up, I chat with Heidi Schreck and Cassie Beck. They're both from the play What the Constitution Means to Me. We discuss the return of live theater, thank goodness, and we talk about how theater has changed for the long term. This message comes from NPR sponsor Hulu. Don't miss the new docuseries Black Twitter, a people's history from Onyx Collective and Hulu. Directed by Prentice Penny, executive producer of Insecure, Black Twitter, A People's History, tells the story of how black voices found a new home online and blossomed into a force for change while laying down some hilarious tweets along the way. From the memes to the movements, see how this powerful community shapes culture, society, and politics. Black Twitter, A People's History, is now streaming on Hulu. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Here's a familiar situation. You have a question about your credit card. You call the number for help and can't get a hold of anyone. If only you had a Discover card. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. A real person. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Viore. Jump into a new perspective on performance apparel. Viore makes products that stand the test of time and hope to inspire others to live vibrant, healthy lives, empowering your best life in clothing that can be worn for just about any activity from running to yoga. Visit viore.com NPR to receive 20% off your first purchase and enjoy free shipping on any U.S. orders over $75. Discover the versatility of Viore clothing. When voters talk during an election season, we listen. We ask questions, we follow up, and we bring you along to hear what we learned. Get closer to the issues, the people, and your vote at the NPR Elections Hub. Visit npr.org slash elections. You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I'm Sam Sanders. And I'm going to tell you all a little secret right now. I am a bit of a theater nerd. I love to memorize the lyrics of a good musical soundtrack, like all the words. I love the cheap theater wine. I love knowing a show well enough to be able to say the lines with the actors when they're on stage. I love to wait outside after the show to tell those actors how great I think they are. But like most things over the last year and a half or so, COVID has changed a lot of that stuff in big ways. And it took some of that stuff away altogether. Some of the entertainment industry is coming back, TV and film especially, with a lot of COVID precautions. But theaters have remained mostly shuttered, and a whole lot of theater cast and crew are still in limbo. But live theater is beginning to come back. Shows like Hamilton and Waitress and The Lion King, they all reopened this month on Broadway. And my next guest, I caught them right before they hit the road on tour, with their show. I'm Heidi Schreck. I'm a playwright, writer of What the Constitution Means to Me, and an actor. And I'm Cassie Beck. I am playing Heidi in What the Constitution Means to Me. I'm an actor. In 2019, Heidi Schreck premiered her mostly solo show on Broadway. It's called What the Constitution Means to Me. Uh, When I was 15 years old, I would travel the country giving speeches about the United States Constitution for prize money. This, uh, this was a scheme invented by my mom, a debate coach, to help me pay for college. I would travel to big cities like Denver, 
Fresno. I, uh, I would win a whole bunch of money. This show was nominated for a Tony, and it was a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize for Drama. But in March 2020, in the midst of a short run in Chicago, COVID hit. At that time, Cassie Beck was getting ready to take over the lead role. And she said, at first, she was hopeful. Yeah, I was totally naive. I was believing the two weeks and then like the couple months. But we had a friend who's an epidemiologist who called us, my husband and I, and was like, um, this is not how pandemics work. It's going to be a year. Yeah. And so we were a little prepared, um, but hopeful. And then the show, you know, I was supposed to, let's see, the shutdown was in March. I was supposed to start rehearsals for Constitution in June. And um, I thought, well, maybe, just maybe <laughs> by June, you know, we'll, it'll stay on track. Um, and then I think we got, I think we pushed back three months and then we pushed back another three months. And then after that, it was just like, all right, I'll hear from you when we're all through this. <laughs> yeah, let me know. Yeah. <laughs> but we're really, really fortunate, honestly, that, that the show gets to continue and go on. Um, there are a lot of shows that never saw the light of day or just getting started and ended up shutting down. And so I feel super fortunate. Yeah. You know, I was, you know, like when I think about what happened last year when things got shut down, um, a lot of folks went to work from home life, but I'm guessing the majority of theater professionals can't do that. (laughs) Um, For both of you and for your industry writ large, what were all the Broadway folk for the most part, doing in this last year of shutdown? Nothing or things that I didn't know about? Tell me. (laughs) That's a good question. Uh, I think a little of both. Uh, We all tried to help each other. You know, we have uh, we have this amazing child wrangler on Constitution who took care of the teenagers. And so she was out of work because she also works for Lion King. So um, I, I was lucky enough. She got to come. I hired her to be my babysitter, which was really nice because we were already like a family. And um, I think people tried to help one another out and give each other work. I will say, though, also this like incredible movement of digital theater did begin during this time. And there have been some like brilliant things that happened. I don't know Mm -hmm. if you know, like a a play called Circle Jerk. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Which was just like the most genius thing ever, like completely digital, very highly produced. Jeremy O'Harris was a producer with like, you know, a great production values became a finalist for the Pulitzer Prize. There's the Ratatouille musical. I think there's a sense in which like tremendous innovative things are happening and also maybe we're at a point where theater can become more accessible and not just for wealthy people to watch. Yeah. Uh, well, well said, Heidi. I think, and it, it does it does swing up into the hopeful. I I was thinking about, you know, as we kind of got a handle on it and move forward. I think, uh, like Heidi said, it it uh, a kind of forced creativity. I mean, theater people are immensely creative anyway. So uh, this was a new way to try to express ourselves and connect. I mean, that's really kind of we're in the business of connection, and. Um, we sort of have to do it. And, you know, come hell or high water, we did. And some great work has come out of it. I was fortunate as well. I got cast on this TV show that I shot out of my house for okay. NBC called Connecting. <laughs> Speaking of, Connecting, Connection. <laughs> yeah. And um, 
So they sent, you know, NBC sent me all this professional lighting equipment and set dressing and costumes were dropped off in my lobby of my building and I had God, to go down and pick stressful. it up. And t- that well, sounds really stressful. You're your I, own was crew now. <laughs> I was suddenly a crew and I learned a ton and I have a whole new respect. But yeah, so super creative uh, and a learning curve really for all of us. We're for getting sure. into podcasts, we're getting into recording, you know, all kinds of mediums that we're trying to... Um, meld together with live theater and and make something totally new. Yeah. I want to talk briefly about what y'all are doing with your show, which is going on tour uh, while COVID is still a reality. So what the Constitution means to me is about to go on a national tour. Um, I'm assuming a lot has changed uh, with coronavirus protocols how much of the show will change and how much of the way that the folks making the show on the road, how much will their work change because of however you have to do whatever to be COVID safe? Well, we are definitely vaccinated. Um, the whole company. That is a good start. That is <laughs> yeah, a good yeah. start. Um, we are tested uh, multiple times a week. So uh, our room um, is amazing. You know, speaking of coming back, uh, back to theater, one of the ways that we are addressing safety, and this is sort of our director, Oliver Butler, kind of started our, kicked off our rehearsal with acknowledging that for most of us in the room, this is the first day back to work um, in over a year for a lot of us. And what does the word safe mean? How can we How can every person make sure that the room is safer? And, you know, the physical embodiment is our COVID officer who we have uh, with us, who's assigned to our project, who uh, sits in our rehearsal room and um, hands out masks and has, uh, has, you know, sanitizer and um, administers all the tests, all the tests for us every week. And just make sure that we're following protocol, you know, social distancing when we can, only when we're working can we remove the mask and then, you know, we put the mask back on. Uh, No treats, no shared foods, those kinds of things. So it's a whole new sense of protocol, you know, just to keep everybody comfortable and really safe. Yeah. So the show was very interactive. Yeah. And the nature of theater is very interactive. You know, autograph signings, meet and greets, backstage tours, a lot of that goes away. Um, yeah. This is for both of you. Last question. How do you generate that same kind of live energy, that give and take with the audience, both during the show and before and after, when you probably can't touch anybody? <laughs> <laughs> I have to say, the, first of all, we have made a few adjustments. Like the, In the show before, we would hand out pocket constitutions. Like Mike, uh, ushers would go out. It was very like interactive, sort of physically. Everyone left yeah. with a pocket constitution that ushers handed out. There was a lot of like, the play opens up at the end to be kind of a, you know, a civic event. Um, and so we're working on how to do that now. We're not going to be able to do that in the same way, um, which is kind of sad. But the touching question, I find just really deep (laughs) because i I, i'm struggling with it on in every aspect of my life i'm a very um you know tend to be a hugger and same same uh yeah and like i went to my first rehearsal last week and um you know had to tell someone i love and i've known for 10 years that i wasn't gonna hug them because i have the uh, Mm. babies and it um also like having to learn to say no in that way to people i love is, is really hard 
And it, I don't know how it will turn out. I really loved getting to talk to people at the stage door, and, and I will miss that. And I assume Cassie will miss that, too. Luckily, yeah. there people reach out a lot by social media, so um, yeah. that, that helps. Also, some of it you'll never get rid of. Like, I remember going to plays, even, like, back in San Antonio, Texas, as a kid, and, like, I wanted to see the actors, and I wanted to say thank you for doing this, and I would wait by that back door yeah. until they came out, and I would just say, oh, my God, oh, my God. And there's going to be kids still doing that. You're our favorite kind of person. (laughs) I was that kid. I was that kid. And I feel like you're never going to. Kind of adult. Yes, yes. Those kids are still going to be there. And like, even if they have to wave at you from six feet away at the door, they're going to be there, right? (laughs) They are going to be there. And you know what? I think from a mental health perspective, if this is all we can get, um, it's still important. You know, to just, like I said, be in a dark room together sharing a story. If that's all we can get right now, so be it. We really need that connection. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I am happy and excited that theater is still pressing on. And I can't wait uh, to see how it changes for the better. And I am excited for you both as you start this touring journey. Thank and you. And congrats on keeping it going. Thank you, well, Sam. Thank you. thank you. All right. Will you both stick around with me uh, to play a game? After oh, the yeah. Break? It's called Who Said That? Okay. <laughs> yeah. All righty. <laughs> Support for NPR and the following message come from the American Cancer Society. Dr. Alpa Patel leads a team that researches cancer risk factors, and she shares how a new study aims to impact an underrepresented community. My greatest hope for the Voices of Black Women study is that it will help us understand and identify culturally tailored ways to change and really eliminate the unacceptable disparities for future generations of Black women as it relates to cancer. To learn more, go to voices.cancer.org. This message comes from NPR sponsor, REI Co-op. REI has gear, clothing, classes, and advice for camping and glamping, biking and hiking, axing and snacksing, backpacking, and another outdoor thing that rhymes with backpacking. Visit your local REI Co-op or REI.com for the million and one ways you can opt outside. Support for NPR and the following message come from Betterment, an automated investing and savings app. CEO Sarah Levy shares why Betterment believes cash can be a strategic choice. There are times when the market is volatile, when customers are a little nervous about investing. We came to understand that there was an opportunity to introduce cash as part of an investing strategy and to give back yields to the customer. Learn more about high-yield cash accounts at Betterment.com. Investing involves risk. Performance not guaranteed. Cash reserve offered through Betterment LLC and Betterment Securities. Betterment is not a bank. This message is brought to you by NPR sponsor, Progressive Insurance. You call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. Tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options within your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. In this country, some truths aren't self-evident. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of stories as wide-ranging and real as the people who tell them, we celebrate the Black experience for all its soul and richness. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get podcasts.
You're listening to It's Been a Minute from NPR. I am joined right now by two great guests from the world of theater, and they're going to tell you who they are. Go ahead. Uh, I'm Heidi Schreck, a playwright of What the Constitution Means to Me. And I'm Cassie Beck, performer in What the Constitution Means to Me. All right. I want you both now to play a very competitive, high-stakes game with me called Who Said That? Ooh, I kid, I kid. It's low stakes. Um, this game is quite easy. I share three quotes from the week of news. You got to tell me who said it. I'll give you a bunch of hints. Yell out the answer whenever you have it. And just know that the winner gets nothing. So have fun. Have fun. <laughs> I have to say, I did listen to the um, to the weekly update on the political podcast today because I was like, I'm, I got to prepare for Sam Sanders. I'm just going to ask him some questions and maybe they'll help me. <laughs> I, maybe, love show, maybe. Yeah, I love that show, by the way. I love that show. I was telling Sam that it reminds me of my dad quizzing me. He's a history teacher oh, yeah. who quiz me on current events every Friday. Oh, uh, I was always like, this was the 80s. So basically, I was like, Brezhnev. So if I shout out Brezhnev, that's why. Shout out Brezhnev. It might be close. Yeah. Who knows? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Here's the first quote. Uh, it comes from one of the most famous invisible men in the world. The quote is, I'm still alive, though some wanted me dead. Who said that? <gasps> Pope Francis. Yes, yes. <laughs> Good job, Heidi. <laughs> Why, I know that. <laughs> That's so awesome. So this story, it's kind of amazing. So Pope Francis had to have a colon operation earlier this summer. And this month, he said that some people in the Catholic Church might have hoped that he would not survive the operation. Yeah, yeah. I think he's right, too. <laughs> I mean, I do right? think... Well, I, I know I, I think there are people who... I mean, he said some pretty radical things lately. I think that uh, there are some people who probably feel that way. Yeah. It's funny, though. Like, as soon as I saw that quote from the Pope saying, I'm still alive, though some wanted me dead... I wanted the drama and the beef to escalate. Like, I want Pope Francis <laughs> to drop a mixtape calling out all of his haters. I need that. Imagine. Oh, yes. Oh, my God. I want that, too. I do, too, now. Who does that point go to? I think it goes to Heidi. Heidi. Um, yes. Yes. Okay. But I play Heidi, so... Yeah, it's like you both got the point, It's, right? it's we both get... I'm just going to claim every point that Heidi gets. Yes, yes, yes. <laughs> this one is a fill-in-the-blank. Uh, here it is. The global hit Blank, which attracted 64 million households in the first four weeks after its March 2020 premiere, will return to Netflix for more Madness and Mayhem. Ooh. Madness and Mayhem. The show we all March. watched together last March. Well, some of us were giving birth. Okay. You win that one. You win on that one. What was happening in March? Oh, my God. We were. We were all watching something, and it, it wasn't very It was a crazy documentary reality show. It involved oh. animals. Yes. Yes. Um, <laughs> I'm going to make up some titles. Make it up. Make it Crocod up. Cro Crocodile Man. Florida Alligator. Oh, oh, the Dude, one with the tiger and the... Yes. Tiger, so close. yeah. Tiger what? Tiger what? Tiger King. Tiger yes, King! Yes, okay. <laughs> wow. That one goes to Cassie with a lot of help. Did either of you actually watch Tiger Queen King? Sorry. Apparently not. not. <laughs> I, the truth is I actually, I did. But okay. I can't remember 
anything anymore. I, the two babies actually ate my brain. That's true. I read about it, that if you're growing babies inside you, they eat your brain cells. And I had two of them. Sounds about right. So really all I can remember is stuff from the 80s. Yes. Anywho, this was like the first hit of the pandemic that everyone watched together. It's not every day that a zookeeper went to prison for murder for hire. And because Netflix going to Netflix, they're already bringing it back. I was going to say, did you say a season two? Yeah. They're doing a sequel already. And this show has not been out for more than a year. Just more than a year. So it doesn't end with the tiger eating somebody or something. The tigers haven't eaten anybody yet. That's Grizzly Man. (laughs) Good thing you have Grizzly Man. (laughs) Okay. Um, This game is tied. Okay. And this is going to be the tiebreaker. This last quote uh, came... Out of a very big trial happening right now in the country. Here's the quote. My new life as of this night and forevermore. Total confidence in myself. Best business person of the year. Focus. Details. Excellence. Don't give what anyone thinks. Engage employees in meetings by stories and making it about them. I.e. prepare well. What disgraced tech executive was texting this? Elizabeth Holmes. Yes, that's it. That is I, it. I, you know what? Weirdly, I first was trying to say Thanos. <laughs> well, because her company was <laughs> Theranos, the... Theranos, however you say it. Yeah, yes. Because the... I think Thanos. It's the Marvel character. Yes. It's a Marvel character. <laughs> um. <laughs> So we all know the story by now, I think, because there's so much content about this story. There are podcasts, there are books, there are movies coming. Anywho, Elizabeth Holmes, the disgraced tech executive, she's on trial right now. She had this company, Theranos, that basically claimed with just a drop or two of your blood, they could test you for like dozens of diseases and traits and all kinds of stuff. Turns out science doesn't work like that. But she wasn't found out for years. Yeah, Walgreens, right? Walgreens had whole stations. And people would show up for their appointments and they're like, ah, oh, never mind. We're just going to take your blood the, the, old, the old way. <laughs> the old-fashioned way. <laughs> well, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So in the midst of this trial, text messages from Holmes that she sent to her then-boyfriend uh, have also been released. You know, thousands of private text and Skype messages. And... Some of the most strange, sad, and hilarious communication comes from these messages that she would send to her then-boyfriend, Theranos president, Sonny Balwani. And she'd send these long, engaging, sometimes loving texts to him, and he just wouldn't write back. So, like, that first quote that I read to y'all from her, one of her texts to her boyfriend, 10 minutes after sending that message, she texted again to her boyfriend, no response, question mark. <laughs> and he finally responded, awesome. You are listening and paying attention. So no matter how high you rise in this world, you Oof. might have to suffer through an inattentive boyfriend. Wow. <laughs> like, I, I just had like a flicker of sympathy for her when you described that. <laughs> I know. For a second, I was just like, been there, girl. Well, yeah. kind of. But, <laughs> but same girl, same. <laughs> So we should say, just to clarify, um, the the behavior of Theranos and Holmes is allegedly fraudulent. She claims that her business just failed and that failure isn't the same as fraud. Yeah, I think it's pretty clear. But, you know, <laughs> I'll wait. 
Well, wait, well, wait, well, wait. Um, On that note, one thing is pretty clear. The winner of this game. Congratulations to Heidi. You won. Yay, Heidi. (laughs) Thanks, Kathy. I did. I'm not going to lie. I found myself becoming really competitive during it. And I realized how much I like to win. And I'm sorry, Cassie, if I was at all uh, obnoxious. But I did realize that I desperately wanted to win the game. (laughs) No apology (laughs) necessary. I can see your face on the video. And I knew that I was in for a loss. So I just decided to claim all your points for myself. That's how I decided to handle this situation. (laughs) It's a communal win. Everybody's a winner, right? No. (laughs) Heidi won't accept that. (laughs) Uh Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Well, this was so much fun. Uh, Thank you both, Heidi and Cassie, for being here. Uh, Listeners, their show, What the Constitution Means to Me, it is going on tour. Go see where it's headed and uh, see if you can check it out yourself. It'll be a good time. Uh, Thank you both, and best of luck with your theater year, the rest of it. Thank you, Sam. Thank you. Best of luck with everything. Thank you, Sam. Thanks again to my guests, playwright Heidi Schreck and actor Cassie Beck. Now it's time to end the show as we always do. Every week, listeners share the best thing that happened to them all week. We encourage folks to brag, and they do. Let's hear a few of those submissions. Hi, this is Amy from Dayton, Ohio. The best thing that's happened to me this week is tonight I got four-week-old pit bull puppies dropped off to temporarily foster. They're all snuggled up on my lap snoozing after eating their dinner, and it's just really peaceful here. Hi, Sam. This is Ashley from Berkeley, California. Four years ago, I contacted you to let you know the best part of my week was when I dropped my wife off at her first day of nursing school. Now, I'm so happy to report that our best part of the week is that she's officially a licensed nurse in the state of California. The best thing that happened to me this week was I got to watch my son and his high school marching band perform. It was just very heartfelt and wonderful. Hi, Sam. This is Nancy from Stonecrest, Georgia, to tell you about the most wonderful thing that happened to me this week. I was awarded my doctorate in ministry degree from South University in Savannah. I graduated with high honors just five months after my 80th birthday. You know, they say you're never too old to learn. You have a great day, Sam. Hope you get to have something to celebrate too. Thanks, Sam, for everything you do. I enjoy listening to you so much. Thanks to all those listeners you heard there. Amy, Ashley, Patty, and Nancy. Listeners, don't forget you can be a part of this segment too. Send us your best thing at any time throughout any week. We love hearing from all of you. Just record yourself and send that voice memo to me via email, samsanders at npr.org. samsanders at npr.org. All right, This Week It's Been a Minute was produced by Janae West, Anjali Sastry, Andrea Gutierrez, Liam McBain, and Sam Yellowhorse Kessler. Our fearless editor is Jordana Hochman, and our big boss is NPR's senior VP of programming, Anya Grundman. All right, listeners, till next time, be good to yourselves. I'm Sam Sanders. We'll talk soon. This message comes from NPR sponsor, Discover. Tired of not getting a hold of anyone when you have questions about your credit card? 
With 24-7 live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Support for NPR and the following message come from IXL Online. Is your child asking questions on their homework you don't feel equipped to answer? IXL Learning uses advanced algorithms to give the right help to each kid, no matter the age or personality. One subscription gets you everything. One site for all the kids in your home, pre-K to 12th grade. Make an impact on your child's learning. Get IXL now. And NPR listeners can get an exclusive 20% off IXL membership when they sign up today at IXL.com NPR. This is my voice. I can tell you a lot about me. And I'm not changing it for anyone. In NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, you'll find a collection of NPR episodes centered on Black experiences. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts. 